Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Riches today on Spirit in Action are courtesy of our guest host, Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio. Peterson brings his incredible talents to the topic of queer response to climate change, and he's reaching all over the landscape, the earthscape, to find those at the nexus of climate change and LGBTQ plus activism and issues. The fact that Peterson is sitting in today is all the more generous because he and his husband have just made the transition back to the USA after living the past couple years in South Africa. We all know that this kind of major change takes lots of energy, and in the midst of this move, Peterson has also helped connect me with the Climate Changed podcast folks of the BTS Center in Portland, Maine, in addition to sitting in for me today. And I just want to note both the breadth and depth of today's program with a single focus on aspects of clear response to climate change. So folks, sit back, enjoy, learn, and be energized to work for the healing of this planet. You've got the controls now, Peterson. Hi, Mark. Thank you for allowing me to guest host once again. And thank you for listening in on your radio. Whether you're driving or doing chores or however you listen... I hope you get a lot out of today's show. I am personally very excited about what I'm about to share with you. We're going to take a deep dive into two topics that for many people might have nothing to do with each other. Through three guests from North America and Africa, we look at climate change from the perspectives of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender non-binary, and queer people. This includes exploring how LGBTQ plus people are affected by extreme weather in ways that are different from non-LGBTQ plus people. We also consider what LGBTQ plus people bring to the table when it comes to taking on climate change and its impacts. Now, if you're not identified with any part of the LGBTQ plus communities, that's totally fine. Hearing this episode will definitely broaden your understanding and hopefully will give you some new perspectives. And if you are LGBTQ+, and also a climate action figure, well, welcome home. I have found it quite rare, actually, to be in a space that affirms both these identities. First, though, we need to agree on language. I prefer to name the various identities represented by LGBTQ plus people, but it is a mouthful to say lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender non-binary, and queer people in every other sentence. On today's show, my guest will use the shorthand of either LGBTQ plus or queer. I recognize that for some people, the word queer is loaded with negative connotations. While it is now widely used in academia and among some younger LGBTQ plus people, it is by no means universal. Earlier this year, I had a fascinating conversation with a young climate communicator. Isaias Hernandez is better known on multiple social media platforms as Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias lives in Los Angeles, California. As someone who grew up in a community that faced environmental injustices, 
Isaias developed an interest to learn about his environment. Living in Section 8 affordable housing, using food stamps growing up, and witnessing pollution affect his body, Isaias turned his anger and sadness to become an environmental educator. He does this as a full time content creator and public speaker. Honestly, I had been waiting for this conversation for over 10 years. That's when I first became engaged in climate work. As a gay man coming into the climate movement, I felt I needed to bring my whole self. At that time, I met very few LGBTQ people also engaged in climate work. At the People's Climate March in New York City in 2014, I felt like a speck of lavender in a sea of green. Chatting with Isaiah, though, encouraged and challenged me. Today, I will share our 30 minute conversation in three 10 minute sections. In between, we will hear from two other queer people an American, Leo Goldsmith, co author of a groundbreaking new study. It's called Queer and Present Danger. Understanding the disparate impacts of disasters on LGBTQ communities. And from South Africa, you will meet a black queer person who sometimes identifies as a woman. Noquanda Masego will explain more about that. She also tells us about the challenges of pursuing a just transition in regards to our energy, economy, and society. We begin with the first part of my conversation with Isaias Hernandez. I'm an environmental educator and the content creator of Queer Brown Vegan. It's an environmental educational platform. What are some identities that are important to you that you have? Being queer, being a person of color, and someone who practices veganism, I think these identities and these values have greatly influenced the work I do and how I approach my environmental work. I'm just so thrilled to meet another queer person who cares about climate change. And Almost every one of your posts, you really do a great job of going out of the way to identify as a person of color and speaking about black, indigenous people of color. Can you talk about why that is such an important commitment for you? When I was young, I grew up in an environmental justice community. My parents had immigrated from Mexico and We lived in subsidized housing, lived off food stamps, and lived nearby toxic facilities. You know, I lived right next to the Metrolink station in San Fernando Valley. That generated a lot of noise pollution. So at a young age, I already realized that I grew up in poverty and that the current resources that I had in my community were very different from different communities across Los Angeles. I would say that the emphasis between before Black, Indigenous people, of global majority is obviously to recognize that historically black and brown communities have been dumping ground for toxic facilities, for environmental policies, for companies to create more facilities or have more permits to pollute. It's often known that communities of color have not as much political regulation or strong political power to protect themselves from these types of instances that they are polluted. And so For me, it's really personal because of the health issues that I've developed as I've gotten older, of high levels of stress, heavy breathing due to like pollution in my body. Like these are all the long term effects for me. And when I emphasize the importance of these communities, it's meaning that I don't believe anyone should live in a poison environment. And, the, and pollution starts by looking and examining 
at white supremacy and how it has created hierarchical roles in the way that we oppress each other in this system. Yeah, when I was a kid in the late 60s, early 70s, we lived in Stamford, Connecticut, and there was tons of pollution and I had super bad asthma. Uh, you know, we were an Italian-American working class family, but we were able to move to the country where a relative lived, moved to a predominantly white neighborhood from a predominantly black neighborhood. And we were welcome. But I know at that time, and even today, it's hard to flee some of these places because of all of these systems of oppression that keep people locked in place. There's also the the terror that can come by going to a predominantly white area that is hostile. As a child, what options did you have in regards to your own health and development being surrounded by so much toxin? Yeah, this is such a great question. I would say that the amount of resources I had in my community were very limited. You know, I, I grew up recycling cans with my mom in the neighborhood of Los Angeles. And the recycling economy is out there in LA and New York City, wherever you go, right? These are things that no child should be doing. When I was 13 or 14, my father would take me to go create gardens and landscapes for his work on weekends with my older brother. And we'd go to rich cities in LA, like, you know, Bel Air, Beverly Hills, Calabasas. We'd go all of those places. And I, I remember clearly just always going to these rich homes that had so much, you know, natural resources and amenities and affluence. Just seeing the kids who are my age looking at me clean their backyards, realizing we definitely live in a different world and landscape, even though we live in the same region. The amount of resources that I was given as a young child were stolen from me. You'd go to the hospital, you had Medicare. Medicare obviously has its own issues, right? Like it does help in some way, but it, it has so many issues. And I remember just always being dismissed by doctors of like, it's just a panic attack. It's just a panic attack. And it was just kind of like, so this is normal for me to, you know, run outside and within five minutes, I can't breathe. You say I'm overweight, but then there's other things of like that are contributing to this. I just learned how to normalize injustice and recognize because your parents are poor or they didn't work hard in life, you deserve to live this way. And so I just kind of accepted it. I was just like, well, this is who I am. This is my life. I can't really change it. So I felt defeated. And I think it wasn't until the end of high school when I got into college, right, the pipeline of like going to college will change your life. Like it does in some ways, but it's, it's not going to liberate your pain, not going to liberate your community's pain. Like I recognize like this is an opportunity for me to take back of what I what I experienced and to be vocal of these issues because I realized had I not been more outspoken as a young child, maybe there my life opportunities would have been different. But I often feel that a lot of kids and like teenagers normalize it because we're not critically challenged to think outside the box or sometimes the educational systems that we partake in don't cater to that. They just make you feel indoctrinated to the existing systems that we live in and to accept it for what it is. In the next part of my interview with Isaiah, he tells us about his own journey as a queer person and talks about what LGBTQ plus people bring to the table. But I first want you to meet two other guests. Leo Goldsmith is in the U.S. capital of Washington, D.C. Um, so I identify as pansexual. I'm a trans man. I'm Latinx. And I am a cat parent. I just have one. His name is Ham Ham. And Okwanda Masego is in the South African capital of Pretoria. 
I am a queer black woman. I don't necessarily always identify as a woman, but I think that's one of those big identities that exist within me. That particular identity helps me to frame how I decide to live my life, but also how I do the work that I do. As much as it it sucks being a member of a marginalized community at the end of the day, I think it does also then help you to build some character and decide for yourself how you want to make an impact in the world. Probably growing up extremely poor as well just helped me frame how I think about um, the economy in terms of what does equitable distribution look like, um, which is then why I have now ended up doing work that I always like to describe it as at the intersection of climate change, just transition, obviously, gender, as well as industrial policy. But yeah, I am a queer black woman, and so that is one of the major driving identities for me and I suppose right now I'm also trying to be a poultry farmer. I'm busy looking for my chicken that ran away. But, you know, it's one of those things that happened. (laughs) It's funny because it's been missing for a good two weeks and then today it shows up. But then my dog was around. So then, you know, she started chasing the chicken and now it's disappeared again. So I'll just wait another week or so for it to come back. When not chasing down a lost chicken... Nokwanda keeps herself busy with work that seeks to shift the South African national economic discourse. She worked for the South African Treasury, and now she is a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies, or TIPS. TIPS is an independent, nonprofit economic research institution established in 1996 to support economic policy development. At the moment, I call myself an economist, which is true. I did study economics. I did development economics for my master's. And so now I am essentially working as a as an economist. I'm a senior economist at Trade and Industrial Policy Strategies. But prior to that, I was a budget analyst at the National Treasury I was essentially responsible for the social development work, so managing the administration budget for the social security agency that does social grants. The topic of justice came up over and over in my conversations with Leo and Aguanda. I've been involved in a lot of environmental type work even back to when I was in high school. And so like the environmental issues, especially environmental justice issues, have always been kind of front and center for me. South Africa is a very complicated country given um, the history of upper date and what that did in terms of concentrating our economy and mineral resources, but also what it did and then making sure that Black people in particular are kept outside of the mainstream economy. What does the transition have to do with Justice. I think it has everything to do with justice. That's something that I've been trying to drive across. So I wrote a policy brief, I believe it was last year. So the one policy brief is on just transition and gender and trying to find like a gender just approach to the just transition. 
And then as part of the Presidential Climate Commission, I I wrote another policy brief around unemployment and sustainable livelihoods. So essentially trying to figure out how to have the conversation in the context of the just transition. And my fundamental problem there right now is that obviously the just transition is is a fundamentally labor-based conversation. It's a fundamentally labor-based approach that, you know, comes from coal conversations in the state. In the context of South Africa, we have to consider that One, most Black people are left out of the mainstream economy. Yes, they might be working. Mostly it's informal stuff. It's been so marginal that we have not necessarily been the biggest driver of emissions in the country. The people that are going to feel the impact of climate change the most are Black people. But you have to consider that in the context of there's so many things that we have to address for, that we have to solve for. So right now we're talking about the just transition. What do we do about the workers that are going to lose jobs? We're not thinking about the fact that there are people who don't necessarily have jobs the majority of whom are Black, who are then left out of the just transition conversation. It's also there for women, which goes back to the policy brief I just mentioned a few minutes ago, the gender one. Women cannot transition from jobs that they do not have. In the context of everyone, people cannot transition from jobs they do not have. And so how do we then talk about this as a just transition if we're only talking about a small proportion of people in South Africa. As you know, we have very high unemployment. And so that tells you that the conversation about the just transition, if we're just focusing on labor, is about that small subset of about 14, 15 million people out of a total population of almost 59 million people. And so what does a just transition look like in that context? It, it, it has to be about justice. How do we take care of the people that have contributed the list to climate change, but are going to feel the impact the most? With the history of white supremacy in South Africa, even after the end of apartheid, Nkwanda points out how much work needs to be done. But what about in the USA? I asked Leo about environmental justice and environmental racism. I kind of got more interested in the environmental justice aspect of climate change because it's those who are the most marginalized are going to bear the most burden of climate-related impacts and also have the least adapted capacity to protect themselves from those impacts and kind of bounce back after all of the the same systems that perpetuate settler colonialism or white supremacy or homophobia or transphobia, and also the destruction of the environment and the perpetuation of climate change all come from the same root cause. That's something that has been failed to be connected, especially among environmental scientists and climate scientists, but also on the flip side of those who are, you know, studying like queer and trans theory those two things, both environment and also 
queer and trans individuals and theory hasn't necessarily been connected yet as being caused by the same thing or even interconnected or interrelated. What was your own journey as a queer person in understanding who you were, accepting that, and then kind of making it public? By the time I was 13 and 14, I was beginning to question, like, what does identity look like? And why is it the fact that in religion, that was only supposed to be male and female? And it was almost shunned as if, like, there was two females dating or two men dating. And so I think that by the time of the end of high school, I had to come into acceptance that, you know, perhaps I was bi or gay or whatever that may have been the identifier at the time. And I recognized that, you know, I I may lose friends. And I came out during prom with my friends, actually, which was really (laughs) funny. And um, it was really sad because a lot of my guy friends that were straight were so extremely homophobic Mm -hmm. and were making, like, um, homophobic remarks, like, jokes about me. And I was just, like, and all the women in my life that I told, they were like, oh, I'm supportive of you. I'm here to help you if you need help. And when I got into college, I was like, I'm going to say who I am. And honestly, if they don't like me because of my sexuality, that's fine. I'm here to get my degree. And I felt confident in developing myself throughout college as a queer person, not knowing, not having to be like, oh, am I gay? Am I not? Like, it's just saying, yes, I'm queer. This is who I am. I like men. I um, I exist on the spectrum. And honestly, I feel that you know, through my experiences with other queer communities in, on campus and being able to meet other queer friends, it really built this sense of community and acceptance for me. This queerness and this acceptance of my identity has played a huge role in my environmental work. I'm able to enter different rooms and just say, I'm queer, brown, vegan. And like, if you have an issue with my queerness, let's interrogate that. And let's challenge that. Like, why do you feel so threatened when I just walked in and just introduced myself? Like, is there something that makes you feel uncomfortable about me? Because clearly I'm just talking to you as a normal person. And I'm so grateful for that. And I made the same choice too when I first started getting involved with climate work. I was like, oh, you know, it's a very straight spaces. What do I do? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I need to go in as my whole self. And I'm queer and I have some real strengths because of that. And to tamp them down would be a mistake. I would not be giving my all. What is it that you think that queer people bring to the table in environmental justice work, in climate work? Specifically, queer and trans communities are able to build and create resiliency and regenerative systems. And one way to look at this is understanding, right, when natural, when not even natural disasters, but when like floods, wildfires, tornadoes hit, right? What do we do when those natural disaster relief camps are rooted in homophobia and transphobia because the majority of the workers who are at the shelters of these workers from Red Cross or whatever you may call it really hold deep Christianity values, right? And nothing wrong with that, but it's wrong when it goes to the fact of like you're discriminating against someone who's queer and trans trying to seek refuge. And then no one talks about the violence within those camps, right? Like people are heavily misgendered. They are harassed. They they are violated in so many ways. Like these are things that we have to kind of recognize that when we're being queer and trans communities into climate policy, into shaping this, that we recognize that the people that are going to be protecting us into craft policies are the ones that understand the most safe spaces for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I I wonder, and I don't know this if it's true or not, but I wonder if queer black 
people of color, indigenous folks, I wonder if they're more engaged in adaptation work and resiliency. There's a lot of queer pharmacologies happening now because why? Because food justice and queerness is obviously an interconnected issue. Like, how do we sustain our communities? What is the sustainability of queerness in this movement? Well, it's like, well, we need food to nourish ourselves. Or if you look into mutual aid funds, right? Like these are all started to create these resilient mm. projects, whether that's art or cultural storytelling. Like these all have a heavy influence in being able for our survival and to be able to unlock those solutions for us. Isaiah has more to share about community and about the powerful role of LGBTQ plus elders. Leo and Nkwanda echo much of what Isaiah has been saying about the challenges LGBTQ plus people face. Leo helped research and write a study that specifically looks at climate impacts and LGBTQ plus populations. He co-authored the study with Dr. Michael Mendez, assistant professor of environmental planning and policy at the University of California, Irvine. Also co-writing the research was Vanessa Raditz, a PhD student at the University of Georgia. Our study was called Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of LGBTQ Plus Communities During Disasters. So the study is basically outlining how it is that LGBTQ plus individuals at our higher risk for impacts during disasters, either due to the fact that LGBTQ plus communities tend to occur in populations that are considered vulnerable populations during disasters, such as those who are homeless, um, impoverished, lack health insurance, higher rates of mental health issues or chronic illness, and also incarceration as well. So a lot of LGBTQ plus communities face higher rates of incarceration. And then what are the drivers of the inequities and bias that occur within federal disaster policies and response? And so we outlined that inequitable federal policy response, particularly through FEMA, is a main cause that the lack of inclusion of LGBTQ plus families, especially chosen family within policies, is another cause. Also, faith-based organizations and the reliance on faith-based organizations and disasters as being another issue for LGBTQ plus communities as well. And then at the very end, we outline our policy recommendations, which include policies, working with community-based organizations in order to provide resources and training for disaster preparedness response. Coming up in the second half of the show, we learn how LGBTQ plus people are affected by extreme weather. It may surprise you to learn the many ways they are more vulnerable than non-LGBTQ plus people. This is definitely true for youth and senior citizens. We also consider what LGBTQ plus people bring to the table. Stay tuned. Yes, folks, please do stay tuned for part two with Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio, filling in for me today for Spirit in Action. I've tried to include links to all of the guests from today's show, but in any case, I've got a link to Peterson's site, which has even more links. It's my norm to include links to all of our guests, going back to our beginning in 2005 on our site, northernspiritradio.org. Those links for both Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul guests. 
us. And don't pass up your opportunity to post a comment on this and other shows on our website. Again, that's northernspiritradio.org. And if you're so led, we much appreciate it when you click on support to donate to us, because we can't do this without your communal support, as we have made the conscious choice not to take corporate or governmental donations, so we do depend on you. We also want to strongly encourage you to support the community radio stations in your town, like the 45 or so stations that carry Northern Spirit Radio programs nationwide, because they are so wonderful, so capable of responding to your local music and news and needs. Reach in your pocket and reach out your hand to help them. But right now, I want to hand the mic back to Peterson Toscano, today's Spirit in Action guest host. Leo outlined for me some of the specific ways LGBTQ people are affected by extreme weather events. One of the biggest ones that I can think of is access to shelters in a way that is affirming and safe for LGBTQ individuals, especially for transgender individuals who are discriminated against either by not being allowed to access shelters that align with their gender identity or facing verbal, physical, or sexual violence within shelters. There is like such a huge need for very consistent non-discrimination policies across all temporary emergency shelters and also shelters in general, and also competency training for staff members to be able to actually be able to provide care for those individuals. And not only that, but also having LGBTQ plus affirming spaces like community centers that are specifically LGBTQ plus to be able to have the resources and funding to become a temporary emergency shelter during disasters. There's a lot of stories either provided from the news or in like academic journals that have outlined some of those discriminatory practices that can occur. Of course, now with the Biden administration, there is protections for LGBTQ plus individuals, but that's only because they only use the term sex in their policies. It can be defined in a, a bunch of different ways, depending on what type of administration is in power. So it's good for now. But if a more conservative administration, at least in the United States, happens to define sex in a much more conservative way, then that's all out the window. Within the LGBTQ plus community is a growing number of senior citizens. This group has needs that are often overlooked and not part of disaster planning. For elderly populations, what really comes to mind is this generation gap that has occurred in which older generations, because they grew up during a time with much more criminalization of queer and trans people, that more people were disowned from their families or were closeted or they, they have lived through the AIDS epidemic and therefore lost a lot of friends and chosen families throughout that process. And so what we've been finding for older LGBTQ plus individuals is that they're much more socially isolated, face a lot more mental health and chronic illness problems that can be exacerbated during disasters. It's very critical when focusing on climate change impacts on elderly population to really include LGBTQ plus individuals and their specific needs that are unique to that population, but also, you know, acknowledging that 
chosen family is something that's extremely critical for LGBTQ plus individuals in general, but especially for those who are elderly. And what was the most surprising outcome of the study? There is such little data on LGBTQ plus individuals, like just, just none. <laughs> so like, of course, the U.S. Census does not capture sexual orientation or gender identity data. So in order to understand environmental injustice, we have all of this data on where disasters are occurring, but we don't have d uh, data on where LGBTQ plus individuals are living. Without having those two things, it's very difficult to show, for example, on a map with like many other issues that this is for sure occurring. We only have stories and firsthand accounts of what is happening and also kind of some of this background information on like health data or economic data. But we really need that other piece. We need that extra data to show quantitatively that this is actually occurring. And that like survey of methodologies for collecting LGBTQ plus data is so limited and at the very beginning stages. There's a lot of work being done, but it's definitely something that needs to be continually updated and involved. Now, Quanda Masego affirms this need for more data. We know about the violence that queer people face. We don't necessarily know about what kind of resources they have, what kind of needs they have. I mean, some of the more obvious ones, just in the context of a world that's full of homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and general queerphobia is housing is always going to be an issue. Whether or not there are legal protections, at the end of the day, if you get kicked out of home, you've got nowhere to go. One of the things that I worry about is the increase in the violence that queer people experience in, in times of natural disasters. I reference in the Just Transition and Gender paper, following Cyclone Idai in Southern Africa, what we generally find is that women and queer people then become more in danger of experiencing physical and sexual violence in times of crisis, especially natural disasters, for example. What does it look like in South Africa? I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. To get a proper answer to that and an honest answer, it would have to start with understanding what the needs of queer people are, what dangers they face outside just the violence that queer people face for being queer. What are the other things that they face on a daily basis? And because we don't have access to that data, I would honestly just be extrapolating from random experiences, I suppose, if I said this is the answer to that. In this last part of my conversation with Isaias Hernandez, the queer brown vegan, we talk about these challenges for LGBTQ plus people, including seniors. And he talks about the power of community building in order to create climate resiliency. The people who have fought for our rights, specifically like Black, trans, Indigenous, brown, women of color, are still the ones who are the most harmed, even though they were the ones at the front lines. And we still, like, even myself as a queer man, like I still benefit from those experiences and how do we get to build the bridge between those? 
Yeah, I've often thought about the needs that queer and trans seniors have in communities because historically they were so disenfranchised and you know maybe they had a partner for decades but the partner died before they were able to get into a marriage and and once the partner died they were impoverished because they they didn't have property together or a family took it away and you know there's a lot of isolation and poverty and so I worry about seniors and I'm getting to that age myself what happens when there's heat waves and when there's power outages and all and and what would it look like to have a uh, intergenerational kind of support group or support system where you know that we had a list of all the seniors and younger queers you know were kind of connected with them to to be supportive and they kind of be mutually supportive i i I don't know. Something like that really moves me at times, the thought of it. I really appreciate that. I think this goes back to the idea of localizations and how our elders are becoming more isolated and that's creating a rift in our understanding of our relationship to the work. That is really scary because I often feel that even when I see elders in my space, I always say hi to them or try to talk to them. So I think about my parents, right? Like who will talk to them since mm-hmm. they're not there? Yeah. Like Isaiah's, Leo and Nkwanda described the challenges facing LGBTQ plus people and solutions to address these growing concerns. Leo explains what local and regional LGBTQ plus pride centers can do. So making sure that the information that's being provided on the disaster is actually reaching LGBTQ plus communities, doing that outreach and, you know, that social media push, things like that. Also trainings for LGBTQ plus individuals to know what to do in a disaster or where to go or how to, you know, apply for FEMA funding and things like that. Those are very important needs during disasters that a lot of people don't really know what to do. (laughs) So having that is really important. Start looking into like, how can you make your space a shelter for either as a cooling center for heat events or temporary shelter during hurricanes or any other sort of disasters as well, doing some of that resource sharing and for people to start organizing for different types of items that would be needed during uh, during and after a disaster for LGBTQ plus people. So, you know, toilet paper or hygiene things or money afterwards as well is really important. So I think looking at each of the different steps from before to after a disaster and looking at, okay, what is something that we could start working on now? And of course, most importantly, is creating that community so that you know that during a disaster that your the people that you are serving have people that they can rely on during those disasters. And I think that is really key. The study Leo co-authored points out how anti-queer churches that run shelters are the source of some of the discrimination LGBTQ plus people face during extreme weather events. Well, and even on nice days. That said, faith communities that promote equality for LGBTQ plus people can be part of the solution. Faith-based organizations, if they want to be allies to LGBTQ plus communities during disasters, that they need to start partnering with LGBTQ plus community leaders, organizations, centers, 
really put in the work to show that what they're providing is safe and affirming. Honestly, I think it's just about building that community and, you know, showing yourself as a, as a, as a safe place, demonstrating that if that does occur, that you are the first to uh, know how to deal with that situation when it happens. I've seen a lot of churches put up the rainbow flag and the progressive flag, trans flags, like that always signals to me like, oh, okay, I could like actually step into here and feel okay. I also know of churches that that the preacher is actually queer or trans themselves. I've known queer and trans like climate churches that exist. They're out there for sure. But you know, if, if you're primarily a straight cisgender like church, absolutely showing your allyship is key. Adequate and humane healthcare is often a huge obstacle for LGBTQ plus people, especially for transgender and non-binary people. Just finding a general practitioner can be an odyssey for many. When extreme weather events hit and increase public health risks, connecting with safe and informed healthcare professionals is essential especially as someone who is trans and have also had very difficult access or yeah, have had very difficult access to affirming care where, you know, if I could go see a doctor for, you know, for anything um, to not be misgendered or um, treated poorly um, for being who I am during disasters. I mean, what's really critical is that the health community needs to be trained properly. I think the last that I looked, and I think it's increasing, is that on average, medical doctors in their training only get about five hours of education on LGBTQ plus health and communities. And so that needs to increase. There needs to be more LGBTQ plus doctors and like pipelines for LGBTQ plus individuals to become doctors. You know, even like the systems that are used in hospitals where uh, these electronic health records. You can opt in and there are ways that doctors have found to be more inclusive um, for people who have varying sexual orientation and gender identities. If you're not trained to do that and you haven't legally updated your name or your gender, which only 11% of trans individuals have been able to successfully do, it's like, it's just going to happen. People are like not trained to do it. Uh, or to to do it properly and to affirm people respectfully, even if they may want to, they just doesn't necessarily have to do with whether somebody's doing it intentionally or not. It's just the systems aren't there to properly provide the tools and things that people need to actually do that for trans communities. And also, hormones are extremely difficult to access already. And so during disasters, there's been quite a few cases that I've seen where it was impossible for trans individuals to actually access those hormones and the amount of mental distress that it caused them while also going through the immense amount of distress of going through a disaster. So it is absolutely necessary, especially for trans individuals, that health professionals and health organizations really take this seriously. Through suffering and even legal discrimination, LGBTQ plus people, along with many other marginalized people, have had to learn how to be resilient. You know, vulnerabilities of LGBTQ plus communities during disasters, but also wanting to highlight, 
you know, the extreme resilience that the community has had for, uh, forever. <laughs> there are, you know, many, because of lack of federal leadership, LGBT, LGBTQ plus communities have had to rely on one another in order to survive. That is the same during disasters as well. Um, because of that lack of federal and political leadership, it's important also to kind of tap into that resilience when trying to meet the needs of LGBTQ plus communities within disaster. Noquanda Masego has what might be seen in climate circles as a controversial response to this resiliency born out of unnecessary struggle. I don't like the word resilience, even though the climate conversation is also centered around resilience, because in a way it forces people who are already suffering to then have to suffer even more and suffer in silence because, you know, you have to be resilient. You have to keep getting up. She does see how queer people can and are making contributions. I I don't want to say empathy because I think there are far bigger things that queer people generally contribute to society and can contribute to this conversation that's not necessarily around empathy. Obviously, empathy is always necessary. I come to the table as a queer person. I come to the table as a Black person. I come to the table as a woman. And what I can contribute, I contribute because I have the space to do so. I have the resources to do so. In her policy papers, Nakwanda writes about the need for a just transition that includes everyone, including the most marginalized. What do we consider as being part of an economy? When we expand that particular conversation, there are then many more people that are included in the just transition debate. Because then we're not just talking about the workers who are pouring petrol at the petrol station or the coal miners, or the people that work for ESCOM, for example. We're considering all these different people who are either growing food for their families or doing something else for their families. To have a far more justice-based conversation, we need to have a rethink of what an, an actual economy is and what the actual economy looks like without considering it as something that should solely be focused on those that are, you know, making money from this particular thing or making money from some other thing. This conversation has led Nakwanda and Leo to consider their own next steps. We need the data. And as I'm talking to you, I realize that I should probably actually do the work of contacting Iranti and seeing what information they have and what information they can gather because we can't keep backing away from the conversation simply because there's not enough data. So we have to figure out another way around that. The word just should clearly indicate to us that this is about the just transition. The table is big enough. The economy is is big enough. And so we need to take the active steps to actually just expand the table and make sure that more people are included in the conversations, more people are included in the actual doing of the work. Because if we don't do that right now, we're missing 
a big opportunity to actually redress some of the injustices that have already occurred. We need to do that work. It's serious work that needs to be done. Otherwise, we run the risk of just perpetuating the same inequality, inequities. We run the risk of essentially looking back 100 years from now and saying, damn it, we missed that chance. There's so much to explore in this field. We didn't even touch on like extreme heat or extreme cold or vector-borne diseases. Who knows if that there's like a connection there as well. And especially, for example, for extreme heat, many LGBTQ plus individuals have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, especially transgender individuals, um, more so than the cisgender heterosexual population. Um, what can be exacerbated and could cause mortality during heat events. There's very little, there's actually nothing, on whether or not LGBTQ plus individuals face discrimination or are expecting to face discrimination at cooling centers and whether or not that affects if they're going there and receiving that type of safety from extreme heat events. And LGBTQ plus individuals are more disproportionately homeless. So there's just a lot out there that needs to be looked at and studied and researched. A lot of people to talk to about this. Also, like what LGBTQ plus community centers are thinking about this, what health centers are thinking about this, what LGBTQ plus church or an allied church are thinking about these types of issues and what are they doing about it. There's just, yeah, there's so much to do. What I love about these conversations with Leo Goldsmith, Isaias Hernandez, and Noquanda Masego is that they expand my own way of looking at these issues while also affirming my place in the climate movement. Noquanda helps me to center my climate work beyond parts per million and decarbonizing the economy. She reminds me that it's about the world we are pursuing and the people in it. We need to have these conversations, not just as a way of trying to address and deal with carbon emissions, but, you know, reimagine the global economy so that it's not just about extraction. Because right now we live in in a state of perpetual extraction and we need to figure out how to be better people. We need to figure out how to create an economy that takes care of people rather than the other way around. Naquanda Maseko is the author of two influential policy papers, Just Transition in South Africa, The Case for a Gender-Just Approach, and Unemployment and Sustainable Livelihoods, Just Transition Interventions in the Face of Inequality. Leo Goldsmith is co-author of the new study, Queer and Present Danger, Understanding the Disparate Impacts of Disasters on LGBTQ plus Communities. You will find links to these studies in our show notes. Just visit citizensclimatelobby.org. Under the blog option on the menu, select podcast. We have a dig deeper section there, and you will also find a link to a longer interview with Leo and with Dr. Michael Mendez that was on America Adapts. It's essential listening. 
And if you are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok, definitely follow Queer Brown Vegan. Isaias Hernandez regularly provides a wealth of information and insights. Please check out QueerBrownVegan.com or any social. I also work with closely with EcoTalk Collective. It's a group of environmentalists communicating climate change and education together. That sounds awesome. Anything else you want to add? Nothing else. I think that's pretty, this has been such a lovely conversation. For joining me today on Spirit in Action, you heard excerpts from Citizens Climate Radio. You can hear our show wherever you get podcasts. Citizens Climate Radio is a project of Citizens Climate Education. We actually have a solution that will greatly reduce pollution. We believe that putting a price on carbon will make a huge difference, and we want to tell you more about it. To learn more, visit CCL usa.org slash price on carbon that's cclusa.org slash price on carbon i am peterson toscano and it's been a pleasure spending time with you if you have comments or ideas for our show feel free to send me an email that email address is radio at citizensclimate.org that's radio at citizensclimate.org. And now I hand the controls back to Mark Helpsmeet. Thank you so very much, Peterson. What a great program, and thanks for the links. Remember, folks, we've got more links related to Citizens Climate Radio and today's guest. Find them on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. You had a glimpse of Peterson today, but there is lots, lots more of his work that you do want to check out. So please follow those links, and remember to join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh